A short text, but not a shallow one. So it's good to be back uh, here with you, um, especially after me not uh, being able to be here last week. It's just good to see all of your faces again. And uh, this morning we are in 1 Timothy chapter 3, looking at this text, and uh, in the next installment of our series, House Rules, through the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, before I kind of frame where we're going um, in this text, a few weeks ago uh, we had a neighborhood yard sale which was not very lucrative. Um, we haven't had much luck with those. I think we lost more money than we made. Um, that's the downside of buying the things that your neighbors are putting out there. And one of the purchases that I made was I was walking and uh, saw there's a guy that had a little table set up um, on his front curb. He didn't have anything else for sale, uh, but he had a bunch of DVDs on this little table, and each one was maybe about $2, and some of them were pretty good. Uh, and I believe his name was Richard, and we got to talk for a minute. Hadn't met him before. And he's actually moving out of the neighborhood soon. But I'm not sure how this happened, but somehow, pretty quickly, the conversation turned to uh, spiritual things and to church. And he mentioned, he said, I don't need the church because I read the Bible for myself every day in my room. And he explained a little bit more about his habits. What would you say to Richard? give you another example of a similar conversation. Maybe you've had similar conversations as well. There's a person that I know at the gym named Keith, and he's one of the regulars in there. And uh, Keith once told me, and actually Keith's Keith's brother is a church planter, but uh, Keith himself personally said, well, hey, these, these guys here, and he points to his lifting buddies. He says, this is my church, right? What would you say to Keith? So I'm pretty sure in both of these conversations, if I rewind in my head, I remember taking them both to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, where, where we're told, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Right? And, and many of us are familiar with that verse. But what else do you say? What, what more is there to that? And I think in church we get so hung up on the who, what, and where of church that we forget the why. And, uh, well... Here's the thing is that the world understands the importance of knowing your why. There's a guy named Simon Sinek, and he wrote a book called Start With Why. It's for business leaders and other leaders and organizations. And one of the things that he talks about is he calls it the golden circle, but all it is is just this concept of why your why, your reason, your purpose, what drives you is so critical to your success. And he uses Apple as an example. Apple, the maker of the iPhone, the MacBook, he, he says they don't just go around peddling their goods and saying, like, here, do you want to buy a phone? It's nice. It's, it's uh, you know, efficient. They start by saying, hey, we believe in challenging the status quo. How do we do that? Well, we make things of excellence that are also easy to use. By the way, we happen to make phones. Want to buy one? That's how they sell their products. They inspire first and then they inform. They don't inform and then inspire. The problem is, is in the church, and I'm not saying that the church has that much to learn from the business world, but on this particular point, we do the opposite. See, we tend to concoct elaborate programs designed to get people in the door of church and then hope that they contract the Christian faith by osmosis or by contact, right? We, we, we think that somehow people will just figure out what we're all about, and as long as we you know, can somehow get them here for the what and the how, but we tend to avoid the why, and we forget our purpose. And when we forget our why, we tend to get pulled a hundred different directions 
as a church, with programs, with other things that, that don't align with what the Lord has given us to do. So in this series on house rules, Paul has already taken us through a lot of guidelines and instructions for local churches, especially starting in chapter 2, talking about prayer for all people, instructions for men and women and their roles, instructions for elders and the qualifications for them, and then for deacons, which we saw last week. So he focuses a lot on the what and a lot on the how of church. But here, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3, he gives a delayed introduction. And he explains the purpose of the book. He says this is all about how one ought to behave in the household of God. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And that's sort of the question that we want to ask this morning is, why church? Right? Why organized religion? That's a term that we demonize. If salvation is personal, right? If ultimately I have to make a personal decision with regard to the Lord Jesus and where I stand with him, then why do I have to go to your building once a week? Right? That's the question that the world asks us and we're often ill-equipped to answer. And so Paul gives us, I believe, in this passage, part of the answer to that. But we actually want to ask three questions, not just that one this morning. First, we want to define our terms. We want to ask, what is church? Second, we want to ask, why church? And this is what we're grounding the whole series in. And then third, we want to dive into what is the gospel. But let's start by defining our terms. What is church? What is church? Usually when we're asked to give a definition of church, we're fond of our slogans. And just like you'll hear people say, well, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship, right? That's one that we often go to. Another one is, hey, the church is not a building, it's a people. That's absolutely true. This building could burn down tomorrow. The church, the local church that's assembled here, would not perish. But even that statement, that the church is a building and not a people, falls a little bit short. And it falls short because the, build, the, 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 the church is a people, but the church is more than a people. It's not just a people. It's not just any gathering of people who happen to call themselves Christians. I work in a Christian workplace. I'm surrounded by Christians in my office all week long. That's not a church. right? So the church is more than that. In verse 15, look, look at the term that he uses. He says, he wants Timothy to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So the church is the household of God. By the way, where he says, which is the church of the living God, in Greek that literally has the force of the living God's church. Because the word the is missing there before church. So he's literally saying, this is the living God's church. So the church is defined by who owns it. The church is defined by God who possesses it. Nothing else defines church. Not our denomination. Not our worship style. Not something about our community or the outside community, not our history, even though we have a long one, not any of the members of this church, not our philosophy of ministry, not a particular tradition to which we may belong. One of the problems when we try to define what church is is that we try to define it instrumentally. And let me give you an example of what I mean. Imagine yourself having a conversation with Richard or with Keith. Why should I go to church? Well, you'll grow. You'll be challenged. You'll be encouraged by the other believers around you. They might uh, be able to call you out on sin when you're, when you're going astray, or they can, they can pull you back when, when you need to be pulled back. Those things are all true, but who are they about? Me. These are all the benefits that the church offers me in my personal discipleship. Right? You'll, you'll grow and you'll be encouraged. Well, you, you can get all of those things from Christian books. To one 
extent or another, or from media, right? We, we think of the church as an instrument, as a tool in our own personal growth, that the church is more than that. Here's how I would challenge us to think of what is church. Church is a byproduct of redemption. Church is a byproduct of redemption. Think of it. If God is saving people out of something, he's by definition also saving them into something. You can't do one without the other. Pastor Ralph mentioned this in his prayer, this, this passage. He just mentioned it in, in, in passing, but it, it happened to tie in beautifully. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've been transferred out of the domain of darkness. We've been put into another kingdom. So you can't be saved out of sin and death and hell without, by definition, finding yourself in an alternative community, the kingdom of God. This is why you can't practice Christianity in private. Salvation, by definition, puts you not just in community with other believers, it puts you in communion, right? That's deeper, because you're all unified together in Christ. You're all connected with him. You're one body. It puts you in communion with other sinners who are in need of grace, which, by the way, is messy sometimes. So what is church? He calls it the household of God. And second, he calls it a a pillar and buttress of the truth. So he gives us these two basic analogies, household and pillar and buttress, household and support. We talked about the church as God's household a few weeks ago. The church is God's household. He lives there. He invites us in. And notice, it's a house. It's not a bomb shelter. It's not just a holding tank that's, that's hanging on to people to save them from hell. It's not a holding tank from hell. It's the house. It's the thing that lasts. It is the structure itself. It has value in itself. It's not just a lifeboat. It's a cruise liner. When we think of the household, the Greek term here, oikos, was the center of Greco-Roman society. We get our modern English word economy from it, which just means rules of the house. God invented human households and families just to illustrate the depth of his family. So think about the family of God with me, right? Think about this arrangement. You have God the Father, right? He rules. You have God the Son. The Son pays with his life's blood. This is the good news. He he pays with his life's blood to adopt us as his brothers. And we usually say brothers and sisters there, but Scripture emphasizes brothers because all of us, male and female, are brothers in the sense that we have an inheritance because a brother in the family of the context that this was written in would have had an inheritance. Romans 8, chapters, uh, excuse me, 8 verses 15 through 17. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So the church is this household of God. It's the family of God. We're kids conceived by grace. God is our father. Christ is our elder brother. And then the other analogies that he gives, pillar and buttress, These are all about architectural support, right? A pillar supports a load. 
if you're a little bit rusty on what a buttress is, it, you know, I, I think of like the flying Gothic buttresses from seventh grade that I remember learning about. But the other translations that you might consult all translate this with the word support or foundation. But the idea there is that it's taking the force, it's directing it towards the ground, it's making steady this structure here. This all has to do with support here. So the question is, in what way is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress? What is it supporting? What is the structure that the church is bracing? It says it's a pillar and buttress of the truth. Verse 15. So that's interesting. In what way does the church support the truth? Right? Truth stands alone, doesn't it? The church does, the, the, the truth doesn't need our help, could it? In fact, this is what caused the Protestant reformers 500 years ago to break from the Roman Catholic Church. This was what's called the formal principle of the Reformation. Not formal because you have to wear a suit and tie to talk about it. Formal in that it forms the way that we think, the way that we reason, the way that we theologize. Right? The formal principle, that which forms us, is sola scriptura, scripture alone. So Rome said that the church, the pope, the magisterium, determined what scripture ultimately is, what's in the canon, what's not in the canon, and what its dogmas, its teachings, its doctrines should be. But we would say, along with the rest of the Protestant churches, that it's scripture that forms the church. Right? We gather because we believe this book. If we disagree with this book, it's us that has to change, not this book, right? So how does the church form a pillar and buttress of the truth? How is the church supporting the truth? Because the the truth can stand on its own without any support from us. The church doesn't form what is true. Think of it in terms of the public proclamation and communication of the truth. The church, and here's, here's maybe a more modern word, the church is the platform for the truth. Right? You think of your various social media apps, right? And you think of what a platform for your content is. The church is the platform for the truth. This means that God, in his wisdom, has ordained that the truth in the world is held out and held up by the church. So the church holds out the truth to the world, and it's also held up by the church. If the church doesn't hold up the truth, no one will, right? Who else will maintain the cause of God's truth in the world if not the church as a supporting structure to make sure that it's publicly proclaimed, that it's kept pure? Even though the church doesn't get to decide the content of the message, the church is the platform for it. Again, this is why it makes no sense to talk about private faith. Yes, salvation is personal in the sense that I have to personally repent of my sin Trust in Christ as my Savior. Submit to him as my Lord. But where else do you hear that message about Jesus? Where else do you hear the gospel? Where else do you hear the call to repent and believe? Generally speaking, sure, you can hear it on the radio. You can hear it in your living room from your family. But ultimately, in society, what is the source of that message? Where is that message coming from? The church. Right? Where else do you hear the gospel regularly proclaimed, reenacted in the Lord's Supper? It's in the church. These are means of grace where this book is preached publicly from week to week, and we reenact it through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. 
And we live it out through the way that, that we love and embrace each other. And we speak it to each other. The church is the platform for the gospel. A long time ago, a man by the name of Cyprian of Carthage said this, and now he may have meant something different by it, and, and church history tends to obscure some of those things, but I think we can agree with his basic thought when he said, no one can have God as his father who does not also have the church as his mother. Now that might be guilty of overstatement, right? We don't exalt the church to the plane of God. But it is true that when God brings believers into his family, he does so with the help and cooperation of the church, right? And that's what we can agree to. The church is a byproduct of redemption. The church is a household. It's the household of God, and it's a support of the truth in the world. That's the church. Second question, where we began, why church? And our main idea here this morning is that the church exists by the gospel and for the gospel. The church exists by the gospel because of the gospel, right? It's a byproduct of the fact that God is saving people into his kingdom, and the church exists for the gospel. And I think Paul gives this truth to us in three different dimensions. How does the church exist by and for the gospel? First, by confession, Verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. We confess. In Greek, literally, it means to say the same as. This is why the church historically has made use of creeds, confessions, catechisms, memorized statements that contain the truth that we all hold in common. So the church holds out and holds up the gospel by confession. We also do so by conduct. Paul is giving the explanation for why he's written all of these rules. 1 Timothy is a hard letter. It deals with a lot of nuances and thorny situations in the life of the church. Why is he writing all of this? That you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. See, our witness, our ability to be a pillar, a support of the truth, our public gospel reputation as a community of saints depends on our conduct being aligned with the gospel. That's why we're in this series, House Rules. Because if we're not walking in a way that makes sense in light of the gospel, our witness as a church, our corporate witness, will be compromised. We exist for the gospel by confession, conduct, and also, and I'm sorry I couldn't alliterate this, I tried to think of a word that started with C, but it doesn't, by song. You think chorus? Nah, too, too esoteric. But we hold out the gospel in song as well. Because what's cool is that the verses that follow, and you can probably tell in your Bible in verse 16, the way it's sort of indented and paragraphed there, is that we believe that this is Paul quoting from an ancient hymn that circulated in the church. There's a shift of tone. There's a lack of context. It kind of just kind of jumps in here. It doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the letter. Um, it's metered, right? So you can, you, can almost, you can almost hum it. You can almost tap it out. And it's certainly poetic, and it fits. each of these statements kind of parallels each other, no matter how you chop it up. These are clearly song lyrics. And we're reminded of our call to worship, that we're supposed to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19. The church does these things. We confess the truth. We live in accord with the truth. We sing the truth. Listen, if we're not centered around the truth of the gospel, then the church ceases to be church. You guys remember 
when Israel was going through some hardship in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And Phinehas had a son named Ichabod. And Ichabod's name was a warning sign to the people. And his name meant the glory has departed. Right? Imagine that statement being made. Can you imagine the devastation if that statement were ever to be made of our church? And I pray that that day doesn't come that the glory has departed, that the manifest presence of God in and through the truth being believed and proclaimed is gone, right? The spirit has left the building. We don't ever want that to be said of us. It's important we remember that the church ceases to be the church if we lose the truth because there are a lot of philosophies these days that say the church It's just this informal thing. It's just this odd gathering, smattering of people who happen to be exploring Jesus, right? They're not committed yet, right? They're just showing up. And we want our church to be an inviting community that's attractive to the world, but not because of our entertainment value, of which I think we have relatively little. (laughs) The church is for believers. The church is the gathered body of saints. Listen, this is not the game. This is not a stationary evangelistic crusade, as nice as that would be. This is the huddle before the game. We're here for the Lord, and we're here to connect with him vertically so that we can go out horizontally the other six days of the week. If we miss that, and if we miss the fact that the church exists for the truth as God's household, we'll again be pulled in a bunch of different directions. So what is this truth? right? If that's why the church exists and what the church is, the pillar in support of the truth, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Paul explains what is the truth for us. So looking at that final verse, verse 16 here, that's a weird phrase, isn't it? The mystery of godliness. This isn't what the world might think. The world might look at that phrase and see, yeah, you know, like godliness, religion, spirituality, it's weird, it's vague, it's mysterious, right? There's different strokes for different folks in religion. That's maybe the popular sense of what we would do with these verses here, but... In the New Testament, mystery is not something that's vague and unknowable. It's something that was concealed and is now revealed. Ephesians 3, 4 and 5, Paul talks about another mystery, the mystery of the fact that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, would be incorporated into God's people. This was not well known prior to the coming of Christ because God's purposes were mostly focused on geopolitical Israel. So Paul says this, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So mystery was concealed and is now revealed. Well, what makes godliness such a mystery? Right, The mystery of godliness. If you're looking at a different translation, you might have the word piety there, potentially. The Greek word is translated both ways. Eusebius, it means reverence, piety, good reverence. It's related to the Greco-Roman virtue. Think of the ancient virtues, right, of pietas, which basically meant showing honor to whom honor is due. And usually that meant placating the gods, or it also had to do with honoring family, right? We use that same term today, filial piety, right, your duty to your parents, your family. So it's about honoring. It's about duty. And this same word is also what the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses in Proverbs when we read in English the fear of the Lord. 
So remember the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1, 7, right? It's the beginning of wisdom, the knowledge of the Holy One, insight, right? The, the centrality of the fear of the Lord. That's, that's the bedrock of Old Testament religion that we're given, right? Is the fear of the Lord. And that word there is the same word that Greek readers in the first century would have connected with piety or godliness. These aren't words that are always on our tongue. We use maybe modern equivalents that aren't that accurate, like spirituality or religiosity. But is what Paul's talking about here what we mean when we say spirituality? Right? Is godliness a mystery? Is it a mystery to, to know how to, to follow God, to become more like God? Is, is that what he's saying necessarily? Is this subjective, inner, personal godliness? Well, actually, literally, you could translate the mystery of the godliness. This isn't any old godliness. This isn't any old way of trying to know God. This is the godliness. We might say this is the Christian faith, right? The true religion. This is Christianity as it stands on its own, apart from my experience of it, as an external historical fact. All other forms of religiosity and spirituality are not equally valid. There is one spirituality. There is one godliness. So what is the mystery of godliness that was concealed and is now made known? What is true piety? True piety is a person. True piety is not what you do to connect with God. True piety is a person. The person of Jesus Christ. God made flesh. The mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So why does the church exist for the truth, as a platform for the gospel? What is the gospel? And Paul gives it to us right here in poetic form. At the risk of being overly reductionistic, the gospel is Jesus the person and work of Jesus. It's just Jesus. The church exists to make much of Jesus, and Paul does as well in six verbs that he gives us. Do you see that there? There's six statements. He gives us six verbs. Jesus manifested, vindicated, seen, proclaimed, believed on, taken up in glory. So let's work through these. What is the gospel? It's Jesus in six verbs. First, he was manifest. Before we look at that verb, manifested, let's just focus on who the he is here. Some of your Bibles might read God. Now, it's interesting, in, in Greek, what people would do occasionally, scribes, where they would, they would take these names, these sacred names, and they would abbreviate them out of reverence. They were called nomina sacra, right? And, and actually, the way that you would look at that, it, it, it was actually almost... Uh, it, it very easily mistakable if they had written theos, the abbreviation for that, or has, which means he who. So that explains why some of our Bibles say God was manifested in the flesh and others say he was manifested in this, the flesh or he who. It's important to note, your unbeliever friends might look at this and point at this and say, see, look, there's a difference. There's a variation in the manuscript here. It's not saying God was manifest in the flesh. It's just saying he was, right? It's, it's talking about somebody else. You Christians put the word God in there later. Well, the earliest manuscripts do just say he who was manifest in the flesh. 
And that was probably the original meaning. But let's be honest. We all know exactly who Paul's talking about. Who else is godliness incarnate? Who else is the nature of God in a human form, in flesh? The whole New Testament tells us it's clearly Jesus. He was manifested. The invisible God made visible. John 1, 1 and verse 14, read it all together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this is Christ's deity, his divinity, and his human nature together in one verse. This is critical, by the way. Don't miss this. This is part of the gospel, who Jesus is. Because only a God-man can bring us to God. right? If, if God is going to come and save man, if man is going to reach God, it requires a God-man. If he's not man, then he cannot suffer and obey God and intercede on our behalf as one of us. And if he's not also divine, then his obedience and his suffering wouldn't be perfect and effective for us. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, or in the Spirit, some of your Bibles may say. The word here is justified, but not in the sense that we're justified when we're saved, right? We were sinners, now we're declared righteous through the work of Christ. This is in the sense of public vindication, publicly declaring Jesus to be what he always was, which is sinless, righteous. So at what point was Jesus vindicated by the Spirit? Was it at his baptism, when the Holy Spirit came down, right, and rested on him, and the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Was that the moment? Well, he was certainly vindicated in that moment, but I think the gospel is in here. I think this is connected to the resurrection. The resurrection was the moment where the Spirit decisively said to the whole world that Jesus was perfect. Romans 1.4 Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the Spirit raised Jesus as a statement. This is God's Son in power. Romans 8.11, the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. It's in there as well. right? So buried in here, implied in here, is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit vindicated him. It was impossible for death to hold him. He was sinless. He couldn't stay dead. This was God's statement to the world that Jesus is who he personally said that he was. God rewarded him for his righteousness. He publicly recognized him at that point. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, and seen by angels. And again, there's a progression here. There's a chronology here. So think of events in the life of Christ. When was Jesus seen by angels? There was multiple moments. But again, if we're thinking this is after the resurrection, he was seen by angels upon his ascension into heaven and upon his enthronement at the right hand of the Father. Revelation verse 5, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 14. It's angels, among others, but it's angels who are singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Revel in that. Revel in the fact that when Jesus ascended and he said, Father, I've done it. I did what you had me do. There's a Christian hip-hop artist named Shai Lin who makes this statement in one of his songs. He says, imagine the ovation that the hosts of heaven gave to him 
acclamation louder than a thousand packed stadiums. That's the idea here. In 1 Peter, the apostle there tells us that, that these things, things about salvation, things about atonement, what Jesus did for us, these are things into which angels long to look. See, because they don't get to be a part of this. Right? Angels are either fallen or unfallen. They don't get to experience what it is to be a redeemed sinner the way that we do. And so they're captivated by Jesus when they see him ascending into heaven. This is relevant for us as a church. And not just the church, but this church, this local manifestation of the body of Christ. Why? Because as we gather here, we have a heavenly audience too. Right? The gospel is a cosmic spectacle. The church is an earthly showcase. Ephesians 3.10 says that, that as the gospel goes to the Gentiles, the reason it happens is so that, Paul says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We have cosmic witnesses surrounding us. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. That is ongoing. We must proclaim the gospel to the nations. And it was already happening in Paul's day. In Colossians 1.23, Paul said, this gospel has been made known all over creation. I would say this, and maybe you could challenge me on this, but I'm, I don't think you could. I think Christianity is the world's first world religion. Right? They might tell you in school, well, Hinduism is older or something like that. Right? These, are, these are secular historians doing what they do. But I think Christianity is not only the, the world's first world religion, I think it's also the only world religion. Because think of it, what other faith, if we can use that term, what false religion has in its founding documents statements like, Hey, guess what? This isn't just for the ethnic Jews anymore, right? You don't have to be circumcised or avoid shellfish. This is for all the nations, and not just in the New Testament. Going all the way back to Genesis 12:3, God says to Abraham, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I heard a story not that long ago about someone who was sharing the gospel in a Hindu context, and he was talking to a Hindu priest and he's been working through the Bible with uh, this Hindu priest, and uh, he'd been working through Genesis. And, and um, the, the Hindu priest says to the missionary, he says, I, I don't know why you call this a religious book. The missionary says, well, what do, what do you mean? The Hindu priest says, this is not a, a book of religion, not only. This is, this, is a, this is a history. This is an exhaustive history of the human race. This is everything. This is not just a book of religion. We need to recover that view ourselves. This is not just a text of private practices of godliness. This is the objective truth for the entire human race, for all the nations, really in any meaningful sense, the only world religion that transcends cultures, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. And here's the greatest miracle yet, or at least one of them. Christ manifested, vindicated, right, raised, ascended. Those are miraculous. This is also miraculous, that he was believed on. People buy it. People believe it. That is a miracle. 
Not because it's impossible. Well, it is impossible physically, right, for Jesus to be raised. But our hearts are so stony hard that the gospel would even have a hearing among the nations. And here we are 2,000 years later dissecting the words to this set of lyrics, this hymn. That is a miracle. This week I was reading Acts chapter 16, and I was reminded by why, of why we named our daughter Lydia. Because in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it says that Lydia, this woman in Philippi, heard what Paul was saying as he was sharing the gospel. It says the Lord opened her heart to believe the things that were being taught by Paul. That's a miracle when the Lord opens a heart, right? That's the new birth. That's what we call regeneration. God has to open our hearts before we respond in faith. Otherwise, we're so infatuated with our sin that we would never turn and believe and be saved. And that miracle is happening not just with the Lydia's of the world, not just on an individual basis. That's happening all over the world, believed on in the world. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself, John 12, 32. That's what's happening. He's building his church, Matthew 16, 18, and the gates of hell are not prevailing against it. We're evidence of that, sitting here today in this room, believing in this Jesus. People are believing. The mission will be fulfilled. And finally, Jesus was taken up in glory. And we miss this, that Jesus is enthroned, that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And listen, it's Jesus' present installation as King of kings and Lord of lords that gives him the right to reign and to save. That's how the missional mandate of the church, the Great Commission, Matthew 28 18, 19, and 20 begins. It doesn't begin with go into all the world and disciple the nations, baptizing them, right? That's not where it begins. It begins with all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go. Again, private religion is impossible because Jesus isn't just Lord of your heart. He's Lord over York. He's Lord over the United States. He's Lord over every square inch of creation, This is the image given to us in Psalm 110, verse 1. One of the apostles' favorite Bible verses where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In Daniel 7 we see this, that the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, and to him is given a kingdom and a dominion of every people, tribe, nation, tongue, language. And then Paul pulls from that psalm in 1 Corinthians 15 and says that Jesus is reigning now, and he will not return and defeat death until his enemies are defeated. So he's doing something in the world. He's building a kingdom. He's putting people under his feet, enemies, through faith in the gospel. He's taken up in glory. Jesus is now glorified. But let's leave heaven's throne room for a moment and go back to my neighborhood where I was speaking to Richard. And let's go back to the gym and the conversation with Keith. Why church? What would you tell them? The church is the household of God. It's not just a building. The church exists as the household of God and as a support for the truth. It exists because of the gospel, by the gospel, and for the gospel. It's held up by the gospel, but it also holds out the gospel to the world. We're the platform of the gospel as we confess it together in our conduct, in our singing, And what is this gospel? It's Jesus. It's God made flesh, manifested, vindicated, seen, proclaimed, 
believed, and glorified. So why are we here in this room when we could be sleeping in? For Jesus. That's why we're in this room. If we lose this, we forget what it means to be a church and we'll be pulled a hundred different ways. That's why he's given us these rules so that we would not only confess and believe the truth, but also that Jesus would be made much of to the community through this church. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is so simple and clear and yet so rich. Father, we live in a day in which there are many people who say that they believe in Jesus or at least respect him. Lord, and we know that that's ultimately not true. But there are so many people, Lord, who are suspicious of the bride of Christ for good reason. We're a bunch of messed up sinners. But God, we're here because we believe in your son and we believe in the grace that you give us in him. We thank you that you sent Christ to save sinners. That's why we're here. And because we love Jesus, we want to love his people as well. Help us, Lord, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Help us, Lord, to revel, to marvel in this mystery of godliness, of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Bind us together in love and unity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me for our last song.